You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. As you likely know, we are experiencing epidemic rates of mental health issues, depression, anxiety, ADHD, schizophrenia, PTSD, the list goes on and on and on. It isn't just because of our recent effects of COVID. These issues have been skyrocketing in recent decades. Specifically, in the 1980s, there's been mighty jumps in mental health disorders. Now, unfortunately, in our conventional approach to these things, mental health and physical health are often isolated from each other. And in reality, these two things are deeply interconnected, and the data is affirming that. For example, if we're talking about depression, we're going to see much higher rates of obesity intertwined with depression. So higher rates of obesity leading to higher rates of depression, and higher rates of depression leading to higher rates of obesity. We can have this chicken or the egg scenario going on, which one is causing the other, but we know that they're deeply connected. And it really boils down to what's happening with our biochemistry. Our metabolic health is, of course, going to affect our mental health, and our mental health is going to affect our metabolic health. Now, let's talk about that part of the equation because we don't often think about, nor are we educated about, the fact that our mental health affects our metabolic health. So, how is that even possible? Well, your thoughts create chemistry in your body. Stressful thoughts, for example, are going to elicit the action of really important and valuable stress related hormones that when secreted in abundance and at the wrong times, and even into states where they're chronically happening, like cortisol being elevated or noradrenaline, adrenaline, all these things have their place. But when they're being constantly pushed out into our system because of our perception of stress, again, we can simply think our way into a dramatic biochemical change. Because when we're in a state of stress, and carrying stressful thoughts, maybe it's thoughts of fear, worry, anxiety. It's not just affecting one thing in our bodies. This is going to be a systemic cascade effect that's changing everything from your toes to the very top of your head. Every cell in your body is going to be affected because they're all connected. Every cell in your body is connected. So again, going back to this point of separating the mind or mental health from physical health, is one of the biggest illusions in conventional medicine, unfortunately, but this is finally beginning to be unpacked and addressed. And these two things are getting married yet again. They never really broke up, but just in the conventional setting, we've really compartmentalized everything where we have a specialist for this thing, a specialist for that thing. It's great to have the ability to specialize in something, but to do that, at the sacrifice of understanding that every single thing is connected in your body, that is when we lose track of all manner of human health and real advantageous results. And that's what I want to point you back to. Look at the results. How is everything going with the way that we're treating things in our society right now? Is everything going well? We can just look around and see the results. We are now experiencing the highest rate of obesity ever seen in human history. Here in the United States specifically, we're the king of obesity, of chronic disease, of coincidentally, 
Pharmaceutical drug consumption. About 70% of our citizens are already on pharmaceutical drugs, but these chronic issues, both physical and mental, are not getting any better. Why is that? It's because we've become obsessed with treating the symptom of the thing and compartmentalizing, thinking we could take this thing, it's going to address this symptom without affecting everything else. So the whole concept of side effects is really an illusion as well. It's not a side effect, it's a direct effect because everything is interconnected in our bodies. If we're taking a drug, a statin, to try to address our cholesterol, of course it's going to affect our pancreas. Of course it's going to affect our joints. Of course it's going to, the list goes on and on. It's going to affect our cognition. Now we have peer-reviewed data affirming some of the side effects. For example, with statins, and we've put this up and shared this study many times, but we see clinically now about a 30% increased risk of developing diabetes once someone goes on a statin. Right? It's just like, why? How is that even a thing? How is that possible? It's because it's all happening within the same sovereign body. And so right now, there is an explosion taking place. While there is an explosion of chronic disease and dysfunction taking place, there's been an explosion in innovation and a remarriaging or a renewing of vows between mental health and physical health. And our special guest today is one of the people who's leading the charge and she is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist who's really a pioneer in the field of nutritional psychiatry. And some of the things that she's doing and working on is truly remarkable. Very, very grateful to be able to share her information and to get this out to more and more people because this is, it's not even the future, it's here now. It's just whether or not you're in the know because what we eat, just like our thoughts, it instantly changes our biochemistry. Every single bite of food that we eat changes everything about us. It changes what our genes are doing, nutrigenomics, nutrigenetics. These fields of science are so much data that we have showing how our food, the, the stuff that we eat, instantaneously alters our genetic expression. And we have the power. The, po the power isn't just in our hands, it's also at the end of our forks. So really, really excited about this episode. And one of the things that we talked about during the show, I was asking her about mental health supportive foods. Specifically, I asked her about beverages because it's the fastest medium as far as our nutritional intake to really hit our bloodstream, to hit, you know, to kind of spread out and make work its way through our system, our gastrointestinal tract. That liquid medium can make or break our health in many different ways. And coming through the conventional setting with the advent of soda, for example, you know, you could be hitting your system, a 20 ounce Coca-Cola, you're going to be bringing in about 16 teaspoons of sugar in a go. And it's going to just drive its way fast and furiously into your bloodstream and elicit this kind of hyper reaction with insulin. And this is, of course, that happening time after time is going to drive insulin resistance. And so again, that is a bombardment of a newly invented beverage that sole purpose is to deliver as much sugar and kind of chemical flavor explosion, synthetically altered flavor explosion into the system. It's also, as you know, highly addictive. And once this becomes normalized, that's really the issue. We, as our guest is going to talk about today, it's not about villainizing any particular food group, but we know what this does. If somebody is having a soda every now and then, you know, uh, maybe a special occasion, or a special event, maybe they're going out, whatever. Okay, that's one thing. But when 
like the average American today is consuming soda on a regular basis. In my family, daily, one of the things that my mother did every single day, every day, when I was in third grade, I very specifically remember because we lived on a street called McKean. It was right by this major road. It was a two lane each direction. So it was four lane road right by Grand and Gravois. And she would send me to 7-Eleven to get her. First, it was a big gulp, then the super big gulp, and then the double gulp came out, all right? So I had to put the the double, because it was big as hell. And the containers were so big that they didn't put them in that little, little cup holder remover thing, the little cup remover. You had to pull out the box and fold it up yourself, all right? And so again, every day she sent me over there. I had no business crossing that. I was, you know, I was always younger in my grade, so I'm like seven, eight years old, and crossing over the street. And of course, my my reward was getting a couple of quarters. Play a little little video game right there. This they had Super Mario Brothers was popping off. All right, so I was over there get my get that little quarter, get a couple, a little bit of change, have my fun, you know. And so, but this practice was normalized. It was a daily regimen for my mother for many, many years. And so again, this medium can be powerful in transformation. And so what if we can use it for our good, for our collective benefit? What is a beverage that has been utilized for centuries, even thousands of years that have added to human health? And we talked about one of them. And surprisingly, again, looking at mental health specifically, I was Surprise, and even when I was hanging out with her yesterday, that was her beverage of choice. And she knows a ton about this space. And what that beverage was, was coffee. A recent study published in the journal Practical Neurology details how regularly drinking coffee has been shown to prevent cognitive decline and reduce the risk of developing Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. What? How is this not? major headline news. Also, researchers at Stanford University recently deduced that the caffeine specifically coming from coffee, this is not coffee plus sugar plus artificial sweeteners and all that stuff. This is coffee. The caffeine in coffee is able to defend against age-related inflammation. And inflammation is a huge driver of mental health issues, brain dysfunction, and also physical health issues ranging from increasing the risk of heart disease, heart attacks, strokes, autoimmune conditions, the list goes on and on. There's something really special about coffee, but the problem is today, most people are not drinking coffee, they're drinking a lot of the other stuff that comes along with the coffee. That's what their drive is towards. And she actually shares a unique story about that, that you're really gonna enjoy. But the bottom line is, we can absolutely take advantage when quality is honored, and take advantage of these mind-blowing benefits of drinking coffee, but skipping on the pesticides, the typical pesticides and herbicides that are used in conventional coffee growing, right? For opting for organic coffee and also avoiding the high glycemic sweeteners and artificial colors and flavors that come along with these conventional creamers and things like that, stack the metabolic benefits in our favor. And so I do that every day. Today, I actually had this incredible blend of organic, high-quality coffee with cordyceps medicinal mushroom plus extra L-theanine 
is added into this unique formulation coming from Four Sigmatic. Now, why does this matter? The extra L-theanine that's added in, this is a unique amino acid that has the ability to waltz its way across the blood-brain barrier and help to increase the activity of GABA. And GABA helps to reduce anxiety, making you feel more centered and relaxed. And also, this was published in the journal Brain Topography, found that L-theanine works to improve focus. Specifically, the researchers observed that L-theanine intake increases the frequency of our alpha brain waves, indicating reduced stress, enhanced focus, and even increased creativity. That's what I'm talking about. Head over to foursigmatic.com forward slash model. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash model. You get 10% off all of their incredible coffee blends. And in addition, they also have organic cacao blends with the medicinal mushrooms or simply taking advantage of the mushroom elixirs themselves. We've done a ton talking about the different benefits, whether it's reishi or cordyceps or lion's mane, the list goes on and on. Four Sigmatic is unique in that they do a dual extraction of the mushrooms to make sure that you're getting all of the benefits that you're looking for. And we're talking about, like with cordyceps, for example, clinically proven to increase your cardiovascular performance during exercise by over 8%. That is a sizable increase in performance, and that's because it has this really great resonance with our circulation and this oxygen exchange, this phenomenon in our body just helping to extend our performance out a little bit longer. And even, you know, there's some data dating back centuries with that circulation. Anything that's going to improve circulation might help to improve emancipation of your clothing, all right? We're talking about libido. We're talking about sexual health. All right, so that's another thing, again, shown in peer-reviewed data, benefits of cordyceps, but also long story tradition. Head over there, check them out, foursigmatic.com forward slash model, again, for 10% off everything that they carry. Now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled, Can't Do Without My Daily Dose by Ken Eggs. I try to listen to Sean's show every day to enrich my life. From physical to emotional or mental health, Sean produces life-enriching shows, Sean and his guests are masters in their craft who share ways to live your best life. So awesome. Speaking of masters of their craft, this is a great segue into our special guest today because she definitely fits within that guild. Our guest today is Harvard psychiatrist, Dr. Uma Naidu, MD. She's devoted her career to the study of science and food and the connection with mental health. She's a triple threat in the food space. Dr. Naidu is a board-certified psychiatrist and the director of nutritional and metabolic psychiatry at the Massachusetts General Hospital, where she consults on nutritional intervention for the psychiatrically ill and metabolically ill. But she's also a nutrition specialist and a professionally trained chef on top of that. And she's a creator of an abundance of remarkable videos, training in nutrition, and also teaches nutritional psychiatry using culinary techniques in the kitchen. To top it off, she's the best-selling author of the phenomenal book, This Is Your Brain on Food. Let's jump into this conversation with the amazing Dr. Uma Naidu. So good to have you back here. You're one of my favorite people. Welcome back. Thank you so much, Sean. Ditto. You're one of my favorite people. So I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me back. Of course. It's totally my pleasure. 
And the first thing that I want to talk to you about is why does the food that we eat have such a big impact on our mental health? Not only is that a great question, I think it's one that many people and many of us have actually missed for quite some time. We've made these connections to physical health. I think you and I have talked about that before um, as well. You know, we've been worried about um, a lot of the books out there on self-care and self-help around weight loss. And medically, people are concerned about hypertension and type 2 diabetes and obesity in relation to that. But no one is actually factored in mental health. And one of the things that COVID did is it uncovered um, the mental health crisis, which was always there. Right. And what it also taught us is how our metabolic health and our poor, um, is, the number of diseases we already have made us susceptible to severe infections, even death, during the acute phase of COVID. Again, I think with uncapping that whole area of mental health and how distressed people were, it also made that link to how we were eating. So I'll stop there because I think for many years we've just not made that connection. But food is so vitally important to our mental well-being. It's not the only thing. I still do prescribe medications, and sometimes it's life-saving for my patients. But it's not the only solution. And what I feel we are missing is that food actually impacts our mental health and the emerging science of the gut-brain connection, the gut microbiome over the last two decades especially, has helped bring that forward. So that's a very long answer to say how we eat impacts how we feel, but we often don't make that connection. Part of it with not really realizing that these two organs are connected. Mm. Um, and, and I think the more we pay attention, I think there's a way to help alleviate our mental health through, like I like to say, the powers at the end of our fork. Yes, yeah. I'm so glad that you immediately brought that up, the connection with our mental health and physical health. Yeah. Unfortunately, in medicine, those two things have become compartmentalized and separate. Right. When in reality, like a very strong, tangible reality is that you can't separate the two. They're existing in the same person. They exist in the same person. And it used to be that, you know, with mental health, it was always, you know, from the neck up. We know so much more now. But also, why, you know, why haven't we connected the fact that if someone is having and struggling with their physical health, There may also be a mental health component, yet we know that individuals with depression, anxiety, and other conditions often have comorbid medical conditions. We haven't put those things together. You know, we cite the research, we know they exist together, but we don't think, why can we make that connection around nutrition, food, eating healthier, and bringing bringing in lifestyle measures? You know, in the hospital, there are sort of checkboxes to asking people questions but it's not a real part of our evaluation. And it's a huge gap. Yeah. And I love that you're stepping into this role in such a powerful way. You know, you've pioneered nutritional psychiatry. Can you talk about what that is and why it's so valuable? So thank you for saying that it's valuable. I I feel much the same. Um, Nutrition is key to mental health, but I've brought this forward because I've seen this in my clinical practice. And now it's followed by no longer any soft science. There are actually real research studies behind it. We still always need to do more research. We always are humble. I think you and I are very very aligned on that. We're always humble about whatever new research is coming out. 
we are willing to discuss it, willing to look at the pros and cons, but also looking to look, willing to look at the data. But nutritional psychiatry is the use of healthy whole foods and nutrients to improve your mental well-being based on the scientific evidence. And it does not exclude therapy or medications, both of which are hugely important. And I felt that we were prescribing medications in psychiatry, and we know that some of the most serious side effects are both metabolic and weight gain. Connected, but also we know that while you might improve depression or reduce psychosis or help a mood disorder like bipolar disorder, they also cause these side effects. Yet, we weren't, other than testing labs and stuff like that, which is important, we were not really looking at lifestyle, not really getting under, um, under this problem. And I feel like that gap needed to be filled by making it a more comprehensive, integrated, and holistic approach to, to mental health, which, whereas I feel the way we practice in the hospital is defensive. You come in with symptoms, and I, I pull out a prescription pad, and, and there's a medication. That's how, that's how psychiatry functions for the most part. And I think, I think we, need to, we need to re-examine that. Yeah, I, I think so as well. You, know, it, you said this already. You had that caveat. Our wide range of medications that we now have available have their place, absolutely. But unfortunately, it tends to spot treat or target a certain symptom. Yeah. Whereas if you really look at the value of food, it has a whole system impact that's generally very positive if done correctly and no side effects versus this symptom-based treatment that does impact our entire physiology, but tends to come along with a wide range of negative side effects as well. And so I think it's getting to the place where we understand that food, just like that medication, it's really about altering our biochemistry. Every bite of food that we eat, yes. you know, nutrigenomics, nutrigenetics, changes our genetic expression. It it's so powerful. And I love that you mentioned it once being a soft science because, you know, when I first went to college, it was optional in a pre-med track to take nutritional science, yes. yeah. right? And it just was kind of like, you know, it wasn't a big deal. It, right. And even, right. but it was also very cookie cutter what was being taught at yeah. the time. And we've yeah. progressed so much in recent years. We've progressed a lot, Sean, and, and forgive me if I mentioned it the last time we chatted, but you know, it's still about one in five medical schools in the United States actually teach doctors nutrition. Some schools are doing better than others, but the last time I looked at the data, it still wasn't, um, wasn't across the board. Then doctors actually expected to have these conversations, so that in itself is a gap. So I feel integrating that and, and placing practitioners of all kinds in, in the role of understanding nutrition, understanding how to interpret it to people becomes powerful because then in addition to say someone needs an anti-hypertensive medication, maybe ha having them take it but also follow lifestyle measures can be very powerful because right? you've got to control the blood pressure, but there are other things they can be doing. And I think that that gap needs to be filled. Um, and I can't, you know, I can't say that that psychiatrists are practicing this way. Um, and I don't blame them because it's not, it's not what we've been trained or taught. What we've been trained on and how we are taught to think is using DSM-5TR, which is a checkbox check system. And 
it's difficult because people don't fall into checkboxes. Human beings may have a little bit of depression and some trauma, you know, problems with focus and anxiety. They don't just fall into one category. And that's another thing that emerged during COVID that it's always been there, but it became more obvious that people were suffering in different ways. Um, so much so with insomnia being called coronasomnia because sleep has just suffered so much. And I think that trying to integrate a more holistic and integrated way to think about patient care, you know, like you mentioned, physical health and mental health, but also just the whole body approach. And how can we think about it? How can we think about gut health? How can we help people feel better? And inadvertently, many of my clients actually lose weight because they're just eating healthier and adopting a healthier lifestyle. But it's not the goal. And I think there's a, there's a difference there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it was such a eye-opening statistic to think that one in five medical schools are really integrating nutrition, any, any type of training, really, because... You know, um, a friend of mine, Dr. Will Bolsowitz. Yes. You know, Will. Um, he shared, of course, like 12 years of school mm -hmm. and had maybe the accumulation of a couple of months of education and nutrition. And he specializes in organs that deal with the assimilation, digestion, and elimination of food. Yes. Yet he learned so little about food. But to expand that awareness, to understand that when we have when we take on that mantle of wanting to be of service mm -hmm. and to work in medicine, which as you know, most folks are getting into the field to be of service and to, to save lives, missing this key gap, it's really, it might be the biggest domino because it's understanding as a cardiologist, for example, mm -hmm. and you're treating your patient's heart and their cardiovascular system, yep. that heart itself is made from food, right? Yeah. Their blood is made from the food yes. that they've eaten or yeah. the lack thereof, you know, yeah. the hydration, all these different mm -hmm. things. And so, again, we're kind of window shopping here. We're not yeah. really understanding what we're actually looking at. And so right. that's what this movement really is, is like, and, and even this one in five has changed because it was probably one in 10 not that long ago. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's starting to, and thankful to mediums like this and other uh, opportunities that yeah. a lot of physicians are tuning in and learning off the record, off the books, right. and being empowered. And you're one of those people because, like you said, you weren't trained in this particular way of thinking, mm -hmm. and you had to have the audacity to ask different questions and to start to push things into culture. And you created this entire, really this field of study with nutritional psychiatry and also having a certain wing mm -hmm. in a very prestigious institution <laughs> where you're treating patients yeah. more holistically. Right. And, you know, I, I have to acknowledge that that came with, um, with support from the fact that if the people around you, they may not be practicing the way that you're practicing, but if they don't support and give you the opportunity to express that and bring that forward, it couldn't happen. Um, and I think that, um, you know, some of my mentors actually did some of the earlier studies on folate and methylfolate back in the 90s. Um, and it seems like so long ago, but actually it's not. Um, yet they were making these connections between low folate in the brain and low mood. So now that we know things like, you know, leafy greens and just the salads that we can eat are not just the fiber, which is hugely important, and the other nutrients, but also the folate. So putting these things together has taken time. And there's still more to be done. We, we are still very early 
in, uh, in, in this area. But I think the food as medicine um, component of all of this is so important because now every single major chronic illness is associated with nutrition mm-hmm. and is one of the major driving factors that can be changed. Yet, I think it's two in 10 Americans eat enough servings of fruit and vegetables in their diet. And we know that. Yet, I think we spend a lot of time counting protein, um, which is important. But it's often fiber and those are the nutrients that we're missing. Yeah, yeah. So you said something so profound earlier about you know the system that, ha- again, it has its place in a certain level of eff- efficacy, which is this kind of check checkbox system. Yeah. You know, however, the marketing towards several different medications involved in psychiatry are for, quote, chemical imbalance. Yes. Right. So can you talk about the, the conflict there yeah. and how do we get into this place where we have something, this kind of blanket statement like, oh, you have a chemical imbalance. Right. And also the new data coming out about mm-hmm. the serotonin deficiency theory. Right. So new research this year by a group in, in um, London has actually uncovered the fact that, that perhaps we've been basing this so-called chemical imbalance. I actually don't like the term. I'm sure I've used it many times. Um, but again, goes back to how we, we've been educated in, in the field of mental health. Really looked at the fact that maybe there isn't a real basis to this. And I think that for the part of me that is still a clinician and deals with patients, I have to be very cautious about not just saying to people, come off your medication, um, you know, do this and do that. Let's do this carefully, cautiously. But what I think it pointed to is we need more research and more of an understanding as to how we got to this place. Yet, I think the power in this, and what it taught me more, Sean, was there have been some recent revelations this year about some falsified information with Alzheimer's that's still being looked at and theories that we've believed and followed and understood and researched for decades now. Then the serotonin piece. And it's really got me thinking about the power of nutrition more. Yeah. Because here's the thing, you can have a side effect from a medication. You may not do well on a medication. We know that studies of say anxiety, not everyone is cured when they take an anxiety medication. Many people continue suffering. But if you are willing to be patient with yourself, maybe make some healthy adjustments in your diet, look at how you're eating. Nutrition can be a really powerful tool because you said earlier, you know, you're not going to get a side effect unless you have an allergen intolerance. You're not going to get a side effect from food. And when we look at all these theories may be being uncovered, changed, evolved, and more research coming out. Food becomes a natural, uh, a natural tool that we can turn to um, because we're not sure whether Prozac works anymore and is that actually how it's supposed to work. Mm. Um, and it's never been how I've seen it, even though I've, though I've been taught that way. I'm not saying that I have a solution or that I know everything. What I'm saying is when I sit with, with individuals and I have this checkbox system, I always feel a little bit out of depth because I feel like there's a human being sitting in front of me who's telling me how they're feeling. They don't fit into all these checkboxes. I don't think it's necessarily an imbalance. And I feel those words don't fully describe even in the brain what's going on. So if anything, we just need more. We need to do more and learn more and embrace change in in how we're doing things. 
Yeah, I love that. That's it's so powerful because when you say that it's a person sitting in front of you, it really if we can expand our awareness of the fact that just something simple, you know, every two people, their depression is not the same, right? That, that correct. Two yeah. different people, you know, a hundred different people. It's a hundred different versions of anxiety. Even anxiety. Yeah. yeah. So when we, but what we tend to do again is we we want to compartmentalize things. We want to place labels yeah. so we can have standard of care. Standard of care, and with standard of care comes medication care, because hospitals all about you know how we standardize these formulas for treatment, these protocols, and look. You know, for example, stroke protocol, hugely important to save lives. You know, myocardial infarct, hugely important. Mental health, a little bit different. We have in the hospitals ways that we can contain and manage an emergency, and all of those are extremely important. But let's, let's think about this for a moment. You know, we, we need to be looking deeper yeah. at the human being, the human condition, and trying to understand that better. Um, there's so many different ways that anxiety can present, you know, and sometimes you are treating a completely different symptom. And I've found in my patient care that sometimes people are coming in for one symptom, but when we work on gut healing through their diet, we realize that that was being driven. The anxiety was being driven by just probably dysbiosis, some underlying inflammation going on. And the symptoms of anxiety subside, and we've been able to avoid medications in instances where people can work in a slow and steady way and sort of tolerate those dietary changes and tolerate the symptoms. Awesome. This is a perfect segue because, and we'll put the study up for everybody to see. Uh, this was a study that you were talking about a little bit earlier. The title of the study is The Serotonin Theory of Depression, A Systematic Umbrella Review of the Evidence. And this was published in Molecular Psychiatry. When you just mentioned dysbiosis being a potential component in a variety of mental health issues, why? And yeah. if we look at where is serotonin even mm -hmm. being produced or stored in the body, mm -hmm. a lot mm -hmm. of that activity is happening in the gut, in the gut itself. Right. So maybe again, not looking at this being some kind of deficiency or, or quote, chemical imbalance that mm -hmm. we aren't really checking for, mm -hmm. but are the systems that are producing and managing these things actually healthy? Right. So that we're not trying to treat a symptom. I love that. You know, the um, the dysbiosis comes from that remark I made a few minutes ago about the gut and brain being connected, and we don't think about it that way. So we break that down for the sec for a second. The gut and brain originate from the exact same cells in the human embryo, um, the neural crest cells. And when they divide up, they form these two organs, and they remain connected by the vagus nerve, which is like a two-way text messaging system always communicating all the time. Um, but then 90 to 95% of serotonin receptors and serotonin, as well as other neurotransmitters, are produced in the gut, which is why when you prescribe or you know have a family member or friend, someone you know has had one of the SSRIs like Zoloft, Prozac, Paxil, any one of them, the first couple of weeks, they actually might have gastrointestinal distress or discomfort because it's, an, it's a very common side effect of these medications. Usually in most people it subsides, but other people, they can't tolerate and we have to switch or change the medication. But that's also, now we understand, it's related to where the receptors are. 
when you look at that environment of the gut and there's inflammation, one of the ways inflammation gets set up is through how we're eating. So if we say consuming a fast food diet um, and lots of processed, ultra-processed foods, uh, a lot of added sugars, a lot of artificial sweeteners, those types of foods, the environment of the gut flips because, because the, there are trillions of microbes, but there are also it's what we feed the microbes. If we're feeding them fiber through a plant-rich diet and other, other good sources of food, or we're feeding them a fast food diet, you know, when you feed them fast foods, the bad bugs thrive. And when they thrive, their breakdown products are more toxic, the gut environment. Mm. And when those toxic, two things happen. So, well, a few things happen. But one is the imbalance happens called dysbiosis. But also the toxic breakdown products start to damage the single cell lining of the gut. And those tight junctions start to move apart because these toxic substances are damaging them. And then leakage happens. So this is how the term leaky gut or intestinal permeability comes about. And, you know, I think that, that all of the, the, a large component of the serotonin, the receptors, all of these things are interacting in, in this gut environment with the gut microbes. So dysbiosis to me clinically makes a lot of sense when I see people start to feel better as we improve their gut health. And as they're eating healthier, which is helping lower that inflammation, maybe improve that imbalance or dysbiosis. You just brought up something so powerful we haven't really talked about before, which is we, we have the experience of us eating, yeah. right? We, we eat the fast food, right? We <laughs> eat the Big Mac, but our bacteria are eating as well. Yes. Right? We're feeding them. We're feeding them yes. and, and they're getting their munch on and their metabolic breakdown products because we're taking something that's very artificial yeah right if we talk about for example um uh a ding dong do you know what a ding dong yes, is I do. <laughs> <laughs> we're taking a hostess ding dong which is something that is completely abnormal there's nothing natural or real about it and we're feeding this to an already dysbiotic gut we'll just say mm-hmm. so we have this higher prevalence of more pathogenic bacteria now they're munching on this stuff that's never existed before in human history. They're, the interesting thing about humans is that our bodies are so resilient, it's trying to sort us out and protect us. Mm. And so they're even, they're still trying to break this stuff down, yeah. but the metabolic waste, the byproducts of this, yes. this brings about the situation of endotoxemia. Yes. Right? So, wow, this is like, it's not just us eating, it's our bacteria feeding, eating. It, it's feeding them. And I like to say, Sean, you know, a happy gut is a happy mood because if you are taking care of those little gut microbes and you're treating them, not only is they part of your body, but part of what you need to take care of. You know, we, if we're exercising, we're doing, we're doing certain, say, stretching exercises to make sure that our bodies stay in balance. Well, in a similar way, when we're eating, we're also feeding those microbes. They, they are part of us, just like we take care of our muscle aches or um, anything like that. We are almost not thinking about them that way. And the biggest um, way in which we, we forget this is how we eat. Yeah. Because those, those lapses, you know, I like to remind people, it's not about the food on your plate today or the number on your scale tomorrow. It's, 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 this is a marathon and not a sprint. So it's, it's over time. On, on your birthday, 
you know, have a piece of cake. If that's what you want, have the piece of cake. That's not should should not be your consistent everyday diet. That that's all I'm saying about it. I because the other thing we tend to get into, one of my pet peeves is these these food wars and diet dilemmas. And then people end up really miserable around food because they're not sure what they can eat and what they can't. But if you have just general guiding principles around healthy eating while connecting the effects of the foods to especially brain health, which is the part I care about, but also physical health, that is much more powerful for a person. So understanding that, you know, the occasional ding-dong, maybe that's what you wanted on your birthday, I'm not sure. But, you know, (laughs) but that shouldn't be your consistent diet because then what you're doing is you're feeding your microbes and you're not taking care of them. And what you can do is lean into those plant-rich foods because that's where you get your fiber. And fiber is what feeds the microbes. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, so it's something very simple. It's, it's making it the exception and not the rule. Yeah. Right? When we're having these, call it what it is, food-like products. <laughs> food-like products, yeah. With that said, however, the current state here in the United States right now, about 60% of the average American's diet is made of these ultra-processed foods. foods. So it is not the exception. It is the rule for people right now. And of course, there are a lot of social issues and structures in place that enable something like that to manifest. And then we look at this kind of vicious circle that we get into where we're in this state of consuming food-like products and the skyrocketing rates of every condition we can talk about, you know, whether it's a physical chronic disease or mental health issues. Everything is up. So clearly something is awry. Something is broken here. And addressing it at its core, it starts with really education and empowerment yeah. and directing people towards these powerful yeah. insights. So I want to ask you about this because you mentioned gut inflammation. Mm. And you shared a couple of studies recently that were really mind-blowing. And it's looking at the role of omega fatty acids, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. omega-3s and omega-6s. Mm-hmm in psychiatric disorders. Yes. Let's yes. talk about that a little bit. So there was this really great study published recently looking at the difference between um, a diet that was rich in omega-3s versus omega-6s. And here's the thing. We want the balance of those two fatty acids to go in the direction of omega-3s. But if you were consuming a lot of those processed, ultra-processed foods that we just spoke about, so a large, large percentage of us are in this country, which is why it's called the standard American diet or the SAD diet. Um, the unfortunately, those um, the omega sixes drive inflammation. They're pro-inflammatory to the gut and to our bodies. And it was found that basically, symptoms of bipolar disorder were um, improved if the diet was richer in omega threes. So, the overarching message from that was eating those healthier omega-3 fats and cutting back. My interpretation is certainly cutting back on the omega-6 fats and those processed, ultra-processed foods that are going to cause more dysbiosis in your body. Perfectly said. You know, we, when we hear the term processed food, like what are some of the constructs? Like, for example, it's the oils that are used, right? Correct. To make them, quote, self uh, shelf stable. Shelf stable. So that's a great point. So when we think about it, let, let's actually define processed and ultra processed foods because just like a client, I always remember the shot came in and said to me, 
People tell me that, you know, avocados are healthy. I have no idea what to do with it. Tell me what I can do with an avocado, you know, I, et cetera. So think, you know, I, I don't always assume that, that someone knows when, what I'm saying when I say processed, ultra-processed foods. So it's, it's kind of, it's hard for us in this country to avoid processed foods. But I think it's the type that we consume and trying to consume less of it. Always look at the food label. And when the ingredients you cannot pronounce and the, the ingredient list is a big, big, big rectangle, these are not, these are not, th these are hints um, uh, yeah. that this is a, a processed or an ultra-processed food, especially if you don't identify what's on the label. When it says cauliflower, you know, <laughs> that's different, right? Yes, Pick up a package of frozen cauliflower. What does it say on the back? Cauliflower. So it's, it's that difference. Um, the other thing people need to understand is there, uh, there's a repository of over 250 other names for sugar on food labels in the United States. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And my favorite is brown rice syrup because we make that association or we've been told that maybe brown rice is healthier um, and brown rice syrup is simply sugar. So understand that a processed, ultra-processed food is, is, has very little actual food in it. And ingredients like that maybe are ones you should be staying away from but they also contain hydrogenated fats wrong types of fats processed um, vegetable oils to make them more shelf stable to make them last um, to help the processing uh, they have food stabilizers dye colorants um, all to make it last very long and be shelf stable but none of these ingredients are good good for our bodies specifically not good for our gut because they're pro-inflammatory and they are sources also of omega-6. Yeah, wow. If, again, we haven't really been exposed to things like this, this amount of omega-6 fatty acids in our diet, yeah. uh, largely, you mentioned brown rice syrup, right? Yeah. So again, yeah. it sounds like it's a healthier syrup. That's right, it's very tricky. with yeah. vegetable oil, right? Yes. This very, it, they're using kind of health washing label to make something that is abnormal. Marketing, yeah, the marketing yeah. of the food makes you as a consumer think, oh, you know, my doctor told me I should eat more vegetables. This is a vegetable oil. Boom. Right? There's, but when you turn, if you actually look at the label, many of those contain a very large percentage of soy, which is also a vegetable, but that's, you know, very pro-inflammatory. So um, looking at labels is one of, one of the things I try to teach my clients because it's not something we pay attention to as much. Um, another one is, um, you know, we've talked about sugar before. People assume, oh, they've heard me say, eat your blueberries, you know, add them into your diet. But a fruited yogurt with blueberry, if you consume, if you consume dairy, like a fruited yogurt, a small half-size cup can contain 24 to 26 grams of sugar. But um, our food labels are in grams, so we don't know how to interpret that because when we cook any recipe book, has pounds and ounces in it. That, that's how recipes are written. So most consumers go to the supermarket, they have no idea what number of grams means. So four grams of sugar is one teaspoon. So always divide that by four, then the amount of sugar, so that you know, try to go for the plain yogurt and add your blueberries in versus a, you know, even a fruit juice. You know, eat the orange, skip the fruit juice, because that has the fiber removed and often has added sugar. And, and again, coming back to processing and ultra-processed foods, those are not the examples, but understand the food labels so you know how, how to make your selection. Yeah. Um, one of the things that 
people might do. And I know that I thought I was doing better for myself by not drinking soda, but instead having, you know, 100% orange juice, right? Pasteurized orange mm -hmm, juice. Mm -hmm. 20 ounces of that is 14 teaspoons of sugar. sugar. 14, 14 teaspoons yeah. of sugar. And, and that's a great example, Sean, because until I show my clients the food label and we break it down and we divide it by four, you don't realize it. Now, if you had a regular glass in front of you, would you really be adding, you know, 14 teaspoons of sugar? So I think when we, when we, when we think about it and understand that we need to empower ourselves a little bit more um, and actually help tell our doctors the same thing, you know, have a conversation with your doctors about what else can I be doing? You know, what lifestyle measures can I be taking along with this medication if I absolutely have to take it? I think those are just equally important now. Yeah, yeah. And just to, as a point of reference too, I mentioned 14 teaspoons, uh, 20 ounce soda, say Coca-Cola is 16 teaspoons. Yes. So again, it's pretty close and you, we can try to justify like, oh, getting some vitamins and minerals with this. Sure. But that amount of sugar is so abnormal and it's coming along without the fiber. It's coming along without the fiber. And I think that if you ate the orange, right, the, from the skin, from the outer skin, which you can zest. I love to zest the skin um, onto a salad. That actually gives you some great nutrients because there's a lot of antioxidants in the skin of an orange. Then you peel it and eat the orange. You still you're getting the natural sugar from it, but you're not getting the 14 teaspoons. Plus, you're of course getting the fiber with all of that. And so so critical to to thinking about the whole food versus the processed version of it. Same thing with vegetable juices. Yeah. I love that you brought up the distinction of ultra processed foods, whole foods, and also there's minimally processed food like olive oil has been used for thousands of years. Yeah. If you, and I encourage people to go to YouTube after you enjoy this wonderful video on YouTube, <laughs> go to YouTube and look up extra virgin olive oil yeah. making and see yeah. how it's, it's literally pressing, cold pressing. Yes, cold pressing the, the olives. The olives yeah. And that's, that's how you get the olive oil versus look up how canola oil is made, made yeah. and just marvel like mm -hmm. you get your jaw is probably going to be on your desk watching this yeah. to see the high heat temperature the the uh, deodorizers mm -hmm. used mm -hmm. and all of these processes that take this very unattractive thing that has now been obviously these oils are sensitive too that's another yes. thing yes omega-3s and omega-6s are highly heat sensitive they're, and they're already wildly oxidized and damaged mm, mm. and then they're bottled up in these plastic bottles and they're yes. said to be this is a wonderful health food because it says vegetable oil on yeah it. yeah I, I i i completely uh, agree with you you know it's interesting because um in this is your brain on food i felt i felt that non-gmo um organic canola oil could be an option for individuals with mental health if not everyone has access to olive oil or to avocado oil, which is one of my favorites for cooking at high heat. Um, but I really reconsider that now because of videos of actually watching what's been done to it. And so I think that if I were you know, to write another book, I would, I would talk a little bit more in depth about the research, um, additional research behind that. And the fact that, you know, maybe, maybe then, non-GMO canola oil is more affordable. That was my reasoning behind it um, because of the psychosocial barriers that people with mental illness face and access and things like that. But I think I want to think a little bit more out of the box for better solutions. 
Yeah. Um, because I agree with you, the level of processing is just uh, doesn't work. Doesn't work for our bodies, or our yeah. brain. The best teachers, and you're one of those people, are eternal students. That's one of the things I admire about you is questioning you. things and you know um, adjusting our own perspective Views. as we yeah. go along. Yeah. Because for me, again, when I was trying to eat healthier when I was in college, and you know I was going for organic, right? Yeah. Or, organic vegetable oil, right? Or right. organic right. margarine, right? So right. I was trying to upgrade what I was doing. Yeah. And eventually it brought me just to a place of simplicity, right? Mm. And also I always ask like, what have humans been doing the longest? Mm. And one other part I left out, and by the way, if you happen to not go and go to YouTube and watch this, also the, the chemicals used just to kind of wash it, by mm. the way, they're not just taking organic olives, mm. you know, they're mm. taking these, oftentimes genetically modified, and you just said it's another step up that we could say non-GMO, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But to, to actually break this stuff down, yeah. and so they put in this giant vat and you know, this wash with all these chemicals, it's nuts. I don't wanna talk yeah. about it anymore. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's like dirty talk, but not, yeah. not the good kind. Right, right, I, I totally get it. And you know, we, we live and learn and we, we try to all up our game on you know, recommendations, but also we f as the research comes out now, we know more. Yeah. And so you shared this and I, I had missed this. This just came out this year, 2022. The title of the study is The Relationship Between Linoleic Acid Intake and Psychological Disorders in Adults. And mm -hmm. by the way, so that's omega-6 fatty acids Again, that yeah. our diet, you know, we'll just say somewhere in the earlier part of the 1900s, this was from Dr. Kate Shanahan, who's mm -hmm. like just such a brilliant mind when it comes to this stuff. She's obsessed with studying these oils. She shared that somewhere in the ballpark of about 2% of our fat cells were made of these polyunsaturated fats mm. coming from, you know, predominantly seed, seed oils. And that was what was done when taking a biopsy of a human cell, mm. a fat cell. Mm -hmm. And then today, that ratio of PUFAs, largely mm -hmm. from these omega-6 Six, rich yeah. seed oils, the makeup of a human fat cell now is somewhere in the ballpark of like 20 to 25%. It's mm -hmm. literally changing the ingredients of what our cells are made of, you know? So it's really, it's really fascinating, but it brings us back to this understanding of like, what are we making our tissues out of? Yeah. What are we creating our signaling molecules out of that mm -hmm. are determining how we feel, right. how we think, all the things, it really is made from food. So I wanna ask you about this as well. You mentioned, when you mentioned brown rice syrup, I thought about our conversation that we had yesterday when we yes. were hanging out. And we talked a little bit about rice yes. and just how, you know, coming from your culture in India and seeing white rice has mm -hmm. been utilized for centuries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The same thing in, in Africa, my wife mm -hmm. being from Kenya, white rice, other countries mm -hmm. in Asia, China, Japan. And the question was, why, why white rice right. all this time? And I was sitting at a restaurant when I was again, thinking I'm doing the best thing and I'm seeing the restaurant owner at this Chinese mm -hmm. food restaurant mm -hmm. and their kids were sitting in a kind of a corner booth and they were eating white rice and vegetables. And I was mm -hmm. just like, don't they know brown rice is so much better, right? right. right? With my like broken health and trying to figure my stuff out. Right. Right. And so I, we were just kind of kicking around the question, like why do you think our ancestors removed the, the germ, the brand yeah. from the brown rice? You know, I think you had, had a better answer to that and it was such a thought provoking question. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel like they must have figured something out because their bodies could tolerate it. No one was getting sick. They, um, they could cook it. They, it would last. You know, think about 
um, you know, how food evolved. When do they have refrigeration? How do they cook these foods? How do they um, even harvest these foods? So I think there's huge value to what you're saying because a very big um, white basmati rice is, is huge in India. So it's what, um, what many, many families eat. Um, you know, more, it's eaten all over India. I would say the south maybe slightly more than the north, which is more rich in the breads and the naans and the whole wheat grains and those flowers and stuff like that. But it's eaten all over. So I have to I have to give credit to the fact that they they had figured out something um, in their wake and before we came along. I also I also feel that it brings up for me another thing in in nutritional psychiatry, which is which is balance, um, a sense of balance, a sense of moderation about what we're eating, because one of the things I am concerned about is that in the um, South Asian East Asian population, there's a rising level of type 2 diabetes. So I have to wonder ancestrally over all of these years, besides all the junk foods, more processed foods, more of the wrong types of oils like omega-6s, um, what have we done? So I can't blame it on rice, but I think we have to look at what the diet is that in you know other South and East Asians has caused this rise in these conditions. Um, but I think it I think it's something that again I think needs to be looked at you know and we need to think more deeply about it maybe we eat it but we eat less of it maybe we add in those extra vegetables I always by the way find it fascinating in um, Chinese and other uh, um, uh, Asian restaurants what the actual uh, either the families there or the um, the staff working there what they eat versus what we eat when we go into to a restaurant in, into the same restaurant they actually often eat a very, very vegetable-heavy um, diet. I've seen them cleaning the vegetables, seen them eating the vegetables off hours, and you know, definitely rice is involved, and definitely, definitely different proteins and meats and all of that, but very vegetable-heavy. That's the other thing compared to what I order if I might go to a Chinese restaurant, very different. And I think that's also, the, also how food evolves across cultures, you know, yeah. the Americanized versions of things too, so... Absolutely, yeah. They were not eating the uh, hot braised chicken that I was usually buying. That we, exactly, that we might be ordering. That's not actually what they're eating. Got a quick break coming up. We'll be right back. No lifts, no gifts. Here are just a few benefits of building muscle seen in peer-reviewed studies. Building some muscle mass can significantly improve your insulin sensitivity, improve your overall hormone health, improve your cognitive performance, improve your immune system, protect you against injuries and speed recovery, and defend your body against age-related degradation. This is just a small slice of what a little bit more muscle can do. Now the barrier of entry to building more healthy muscle and reaching a state of physical fitness is easier than ever. Having a few key pieces of equipment at your house can absolutely change the game for you. Kettlebells, steel clubs, maces, battle ropes, all of these phenomenal multifaceted pieces of equipment are readily available to ship directly to your door. Go to onit.com forward slash model and you're going to receive 10% off some of the most premier training equipment in the world. Simple pieces of equipment that you can do dozens, if not hundreds of different exercises with. 
plus they've got incredible programs as well to teach you different techniques for unconventional training to truly create more functionality in your health and fitness. On top of all that, Onnit is also one of the world leaders in human performance nutrition. They've got the most remarkable pre-workout supplements and post-workout protein that you're going to find. All sourced from earth-grown ingredients, nothing synthetic, and they also have put their own products into real-world clinical trials to affirm their efficacy. Again, go to onnit.com forward slash model. That's O-N-N-I-T.com forward slash model for 10% off everything they carry. Now back to the show. So, you know, just going back, that's one of the things that you mentioned when we had the conversation about yeah. rice, which it sounds like we're just two total nerds. We're hanging out with each other and talking about rice, <laughs> and, you know. Um, but you were also leaning towards like a rice heavy culture, mm -hmm. possibly increasing the risk of, again, you know, insulin resistance and yeah. rising rates of type two diabetes. There has to be balance right. here as well. Right. It's not to villainize any food. And that's what I also love about your approach too, because you said something earlier, you said diet wars. Yeah. And so there are people who are kind of on the leading edge of a lot of stuff who are battling about minutia yeah. instead of really looking at all of our intersecting points and where, and, and being more inclusive. Definitely being more inclusive because I think that, I think that, you know, Sean, what brought me to this place um, is also looking at this through the lens of mental health. You know, again, what, what do people have access to? They, they already dealing with psychological issues. Let's put aside the chemical, the chemical balance imbalance question. But let's just call it psychological. Their psychological health is suffering. And they have enough on their plate, literally and figuratively, to then now sort through, let's demonize this food group and that. Um, you know, there's also interesting science, which I know you'll be familiar with, around the formation of resistant starches. So, you know, boiling or baking a potato, allowing it to cool, and then eating it later allows for the formation of resistant starch, and it makes it a healthier product and lowers the glycemic index. The same I th I've read about regarding rice. And I think that that could be one way. Certainly, there's a couple of studies regarding pasta. Um, so I think that these are ways to tweak. I'm not saying it should be the, the center of your diet, but these are part of many, many people, people's diets. How can we actually educate, teach, think about studying ways to boil or, let's say, bake those potatoes, cool them, and then eat them? Don't eat a ton of them. Eat them once in a while because they will actually be part of most people's diets rather than saying never ever look at, you know, rice or pasta. I, I think that's hard for people. I just think uh, it may not be what you eat or I eat or someone else, but it's, it's, it's a lot of what people eat. So we have to find better solutions. Yeah, I love that. So you've obviously brought up early on in the conversation, this is so important. You mentioned that with the onset of COVID in our culture, it's really brought forth this conversation in a bigger way about mental health. Yeah. But you said, I believe you used the word exposed, what was already yeah. happening, yeah. right? This, this was a growing issue for the past few decades, seeing the rising rates of depression and anxiety and mm -hmm. ADHD and schizophrenia and the list goes on and on and on. Something is clearly not working. Yeah. And one of the issues, and we talked about this a little bit uh, in the elevator is PTSD. 
Yeah. And it's a, such a complex thing to talk about yeah. in the first place. But even in the context of COVID, there is a lingering post-traumatic stress yes. obviously occurring in our population yes. from this. So let's talk about this because this is one of the chapters in your book you specifically target and, mm -hmm. and talk about the topic of PTSD because of yeah. course I, this is something you've seen in your, in your work. Yeah. But let's talk about the landscape of things right mm -hmm. now and something we can do to start to address this. Yeah. So food can always be a component, but let's look at the larger picture of just PTSD, trauma, and stress that's been going on. Um, we know that some of what underlies this besides the the traumatic event what's happened has is also how we're eating and inflammation so inflammation is definitely a portion of this but i think that one of the things that we may that not everyone may have realized about themselves is that this whole experience of covid whether you were on the front lines or not there has been an element of trauma for many many people even quarantine there was a very interesting study and I'll, you might know it already, Sean, but um, it looked at the brains of individuals who did not suffer a COVID infection, and it showed levels of neuroinflammation, and um, they looked at markers of neuroinflammation. And basically what the researchers said was that these individuals were still experiencing um, some type of inflammation, even without being exposed, and, and they looked at psychological stress, quarantine, social isolation as some of the factors that mattered. So I think that even if you think that you've, and, and I, I would want people to, to also thrive through this experience that we've all had as a, as, as a I don't know, globally, um, but realize that we, you may have suffered in some way that's not even identified. Um, and with PTSD, I think that I, I can't enhance enough and emphasize the type of therapy that's important, but also food can be important. So just rethinking your diet, um, cleaning up your diet a little bit. You know, it's not perfect. You won't get there overnight, but just tweaking things. Um, you know, the, the research around blueberries, adding in blueberries to your diet could actually be helpful over time. A, it's a lower glycemic fruit. It's rich in fiber. It has those anthocyanins. So the antioxidants are going to be great for your gut microbes. So it's not a harmful thing you're doing if you're adding that in. Um, these, these things become hugely important along with, you know, psychosocial support, um, having friends, reaching out for therapy, um, you know, finding individuals that you can bring into your circle to also help support what's going on for you. Wow. So we're seeing, and we saw already early on, abnormalities taking place with our society's brains, our yeah. people in our communities mm -hmm. that weren't necessarily contracting this virus, yes. but something was going on, which just gets back to the point of your thoughts affect your biochemistry, yeah. right? We tend to not respect stress because it doesn't have any calories in mm -hmm. a way. Mm -hmm. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? But yeah. it can literally, the same as that physical thing you're putting in your body, yeah. that stress that you're dieting on yeah. can alter yeah. your brain, literally. It can, that's such an excellent point because I always, I, I always like to consider stress to be a vital sign because, you know, we think about heart rate and we, we talk about blood pressure and pulse all of the time. Stress is like a vital sign because just mm -hmm. because, you know, I can't quantify it on a, 
you know, on a blood pressure machine or something like that doesn't mean it's not there, but it's doing so many devastating things to the body. And I think that, if anything, I feel like the enhanced stress of, of everyone during COVID definitely impacted our physical and our mental health. So that has been one of the drivers. Yeah. So let's talk about, if you could, I would love, since you were here, to ask you what PTSD is at mm-hmm. its core. Again, yeah. with the caveat, I know that it's diverse, each person's different, but from a clinical perspective, what, mm-hmm. what is it? You know, when I've treated individuals with a PTSD or made the diagnosis, it's really been someone who's been exposed to some kind of acute or chronic, so it may have happened longer, a longer time ago, or maybe more acute, um, some type of traumatic event. And it, you know, it, it could be bullying, could have been someone who was bullied in school and is only coming to terms with it as an adult. Um, some of the symptoms that people experience are nightmares, flashbacks, um, you know, feelings of anxiety, um, mood disorders can also be sort of those overlapping comorbid diagnosis along with just the PTSD itself. And individuals are often, you know, fragile in the sense that they've not, it, it's not easy sometimes to communicate these feelings. Um, for example, someone I was treating came in for a symptom of anxiety and wanted to look at um, trying to lose weight, but really from the perspective that she felt her increased weight was calling, causing her anxiety. And so she wanted to work on dietary measures. But when I, when I evaluate someone, I always go through a full psychiatric history. And what I uncovered was that she had been abused as a child, which she shared as part of the history because I asked the question as part of the exam that I do. And she didn't really talk about it or go to therapy. And um, in some ways, when we spoke about it, a lot of emotion came through. And she ended up very tearful, very anxious in the session. And um, what we really realized we worked on together was that some of what happened with her is that not really working through the trauma or acknowledging it as an adult in her therapy or early on in her life, even as a teenager when it happened, um, had, had, had almost led to this bubbling over of angst, anxiety but that she really clearly, when I asked her the symptom profile and things, she actually had a lot of symptoms of PTSD, Mm. but yet presented with a very different reason that she wanted to work on it because she hadn't uncovered that for herself. And, you know, I think that that's just an example of sometimes it's it's something has happened to a person and they haven't realized the impact that it's had. And that's why I mentioned the example of bullying because I encounter that a lot yeah. in different eras or different age groups of people just being treated badly at school, you know, wasn't, maybe we use the word bullying, but it wasn't as recognized now as being a factor that impacts people's mental health. So. That's so profound. I think that a lot of us, I know myself, I could be like, I'm fine. You know, and not Correct. really, yeah. we, because we can, and even in our minds, we can compartmentalize things yeah. and like tuck things away and not understand how they're affecting our behavior today. Right. 
And so, you know, when I, when I mentioned this, and we talked a little bit about this, but just from the environment that I grew up in yeah. and seeing the things that I saw, being exposed to the things I was exposed to, I had no idea that I was carrying that with me. And that was a result yeah. of how I was behaving and showing up in the world myself. Right. Right. I thought they were two different things. And so I was just trying to address the behavior yeah. instead of addressing the root cause of it. You know, mm -hmm. I remember going to the corner store and coming out and a kid had a gun in my face and the kid was younger than me. I was probably 12, 13, 12. Mm -hmm. He's probably, you know, a little bit younger. And, you know, the store owner for, fortunately came out. He was, he was trying to get my shoes. My and, you know, he ran off. But that moment stayed with me. Obviously, it's a kind of like a traumatic thing. Yes, But very much. for me, even yeah. in that moment, I really, the next day, I wasn't thinking about it like you think you might. Mm. I wasn't replaying it because mm. it's just like this kind of shit happens. Right, around right, here right you know right. and so it's accepted seeing, in the environment yeah exactly yeah, exactly yeah. but it's not normal it's, it's not, not okay normal. Yeah. right and so seeing that seeing the violence in my household and outside my door and my tendency would be to now participate in that mm. violence mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. completely isolate right and hide from the violence right. so i had right. kind of a choice to make there so thinking about my aggressive behavior later on in life like you know fighting in school and things mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. Um, and solving my problems that way, it was yeah. really a result, like this kind of mental disposition that I had yeah. was a result of this post-traumatic stress. I was, my, my biology, I went through traumatic experiences yeah. that was showing up in how I was operating in the world. Mm. Is that correct? That, that is entirely correct. And I really appreciate what you shared and the examples you shared because it's a, a perfect example of someone living in that environment and the, the false normalizing that happens not through any fault of yours, but because it's it's sort of environmental. That's it's kind of normal for that to happen. So you didn't think about it the next day. But when we look at the exact example, it's horrible. It's horrible for that to happen at any age, let alone a twelve year old or even a ten year old, and to have such a frightening experience. Um, you know, trauma happens in those overt ways, and I think acknowledging it, and this is where therapy can be hugely powerful because the client I mentioned. Sean, probably much like as you've uncovered these things for yourself, hadn't even thought that was something she should address. I think shame was part of it. Um, abuse victims often carry so much shame about what's happened to them, and it takes a process of really working through it in therapy. If they're open to it, no, one should never push them, and, and there's you know, a whole lot of science around that, but if they feel ready or they reveal that, and in that exam with me, so much emotion came forth. And I'm guessing as you worked through this in your own life, you know, some of those emotions would have come forth because I'm, I'm guessing your body was carrying that trauma. Yes. And the interesting thing is it carries it on a cellular level, right? And it carries on, on multiple, multiple levels that are, that are chemical in our body. Um, so one of the things I wanted to share is, you know, people you mentioned uh, earlier about that I'm very inclusive in in my view of food and nutrition. And some of that comes from um, my own experience growing up because before I moved to Boston, I grew up in South Africa. I'm um, sort of of Indian descent and, and East Asian and South Asian and all of that, but I actually grew up in a country um, that embraced apartheid. And so 
in what many people don't realize is that there were only two colors in South Africa during apartheid. There was white and black. And I was not white. So, and I remember um, childhood experiences, which took me, it, it took many years in therapy to, to figure, figure out all of this, because like you, that was what was normal in my world. It was normal to not be able to do things that other kids had access to, not be able to go to a theme park or go to a certain beach or be segregated and excluded from experiences. It was normalized because of how the culture was. And my parents did their best to protect us against that. And one of the things that I really felt so deeply about was what it felt to not be included. And it really led to how I think so deeply about food and nutrition because I never, even though I was actually raised vegetarian, my family happens to be Hindu and they're all vegetarian, um, I cook anything, my, I, my, my husband eats anything. Um, but part of that really stems from having been excluded from things as a child and realizing how deeply traumatic that was and that my response to it is I never ever want to exclude someone based on what they eat mm. and to find a way to work with them, their mental health, their health issues, their physical health, and to make them feel included. And, and that's part of the reason I don't agree with the diet wars that go on and the eat this, not that mentality, because it excludes people. And on a very deep level, I know what that's like. And I think that food is something that could be, should be very unifying for people. It's the one thing that across many cultures you can talk about, you know, and share. Yeah, this is part of doing the work, like you just mentioned, um, where you can turn something so painful and traumatic into a gift for others, you know, like, first of all, the gift is your, to yourself first and foremost. Right. And so when no, you mentioned the, the value of therapy, just even thinking about when you said it, it just was just like, yes, it felt such like such a relief to talk about these things and so i would share just a lot of these stories with my wife and it just mm -hmm. like felt because I, I never told anybody except mm -hmm. my family at the moment back mm -hmm. you know whatever 30 years ago whatever that was but you know to share that with somebody today yeah. Yeah. i didn't realize again that i was carrying it with me right. and to to be able to voice it to to share it to get it out of my body yeah it phys I physically felt lighter. I felt lighter. more free. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, especially to do this with somebody who has a capacity to understand or to yeah. be in non-judgment right. as well, which mm -hmm. is a great onset or opportunity with a good therapist. Um, it's just a valuable tool because we don't often realize, again, that our behaviors today mm -hmm. are really driven by things that could have happened 10 years ago, 20 years and ago in our childhood. That's right, experiences, and they all affect our body. And they all affect our body chemistry on a cellular level. So it's not just the gut microbes, it's, it's how we're thinking, it's our level of stress, it's what we carry within us. And I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, Sean, because I, uh, when I mentioned leafy greens or salads, and, you know, I, I, I try to stay away from just rote, Food recommendations that everyone hears, but just try to make the nuances in nutritional psychiatry available. But I'll often get the eye roll when I mention, you know, eat those salads, eat this, eat, or, or, or what the recommendations are. But I often also get the eye roll around therapy, I have to tell you. And I'm a huge proponent, um, not only, uh, you know, in our program where we trained 
a psychiatrist to be able to do therapy, it's a powerful tool. It's a hugely powerful tool. And someone has to be ready and all of that. But it's a very big part of whether you're using food, whether you are being prescribed a medication, you know, whether you're using exercise to feel better. All of these different components should work together, but therapy is one of them. Yeah. And the great gift that we have today is that you can seek out a therapist who's aligned with you and your values. Yes. Right? So people can find folks like yourself and who understand the value of nutrition, for example, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not just wanting to, again, treat a symptom yep. and also providing your breadth of knowledge on helping to unpack things and yep. process emotions and, and all these other valuable entities that oftentimes, again, we just don't have the skill set yep. personally to do it. It's not a part of our culture right. currently. Right. Yeah. You know, we, we, we don't. And that's why uh, it's funny when you, when you are studying psychiatry and you're going through residency and stuff, you're actually encouraged very strongly by your supervisors and your training directors and things to, to be in your own therapy, to not only experience it, but then be able to use it as a tool because the belief and understanding, and something I actually agree with, I don't agree with everything in psychiatry, but it's something I do agree with. You, by having that experience, you can share on the power of it, but you can, you can speak to it from a very real perspective, not just a textbook perspective. Awesome. Well, you mentioned earlier, so I want to talk about some specific foods that we have some data on being uh, supportive of our mental health. You mentioned blueberries earlier, the anthocyanins, um, you know, really great source of antioxidants overall, the fiber. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some other foods? Let's talk about beverages, yeah. right? Because a lot of people I think would be pleasantly surprised reading your book that you really or an advocate, or you really value coffee. I do value coffee. For mental health. So let's talk about that. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a, also a nutritional psychiatry nuance, as I like to say, because not everyone can tolerate coffee, and not everyone with anxiety can tolerate coffee. Mm. Studies have shown that consuming less than 400 milligrams a day can be okay in someone who has anxiety, but this is where body intelligence comes in. So if you have a little bit of coffee, and you feel jittery and you don't feel comfortable, it's not for you. So that's super important. Yes. Um, coffee in a recent study actually was shown to help focus in adult ADHD individuals. So there are many physical benefits of coffee that have been touted over time. I find that coffee on its own is actually rich in polyphenols, and that's what the research shows. Um, it's caffeine that can be problematic for people, and that's where one has to has to be able to have you know, you have to be a little bit careful and, and cautious about it. The other thing that I think is the issue with coffee, it's what we put into our coffee. Absolutely. Uh, when we adding, you know, packets of sugar and or artificial sweetener or a quarter cup of processed creamer that has those same, those same list of unhealthy ingredients that you don't recognize. And vegetable oil. And vegetable oils oh and stabilizers and food dyes and colorants, same things. When you're adding a quarter cup, let's think about a 20-ounce cup of coffee, that large size that many people do like to drink or is popular, let's say, it can have up to a quarter cup of whatever cream is being added. And then you, a few years ago, um, my patients were coming into uh, the office with the, with the new fancy colorful drink that was the rage at the time. 
had multiple colors and so I tested it. Are you talking it. about like the unicorn frappuccino the, the, thing? The, Starbucks? The, the, the unicorn. We call it out, out around you here. You call it, okay. Yes. So <laughs> yes it was. So so I decided, you know what, everyone's drinking it. I know I know I'm looking at it and I'm I'm, I'm thinking it's not healthy. But I thought <laughs> oh, yeah. let me let me let me, you know, let me let me because you, I, I get pushback from my clients. And it's like, yeah. well, you know, I, I got the non-fat and I got this. And it's like, okay, that's that's fine. I'm not, not judging you, you know. So I went in and I ordered the smallest size without with the, the lowest fat version, the no sugar added, no foam, no whip, whatever it is. And I did it through my app. And it had, I'm going to ask you to guess how many grams of sugar it had. The, the size 12, which was the smallest you could get. Uh, so no, no extra topping. Okay, twelve ounces, you said maybe. Um, so so the so the size was what 12, 12, about twelve ounces, but number what what would your guess okay. be the grams of sugar? Um, maybe, maybe twenty. Okay, it had fifty-seven grams of 57, sugar. Fifty-seven of grams course, of sugar of in, in that small size. So you know, then I was able after I got it on the app, I was able to then share with clients. I said, you know, th this is this is this is all I'm saying. This is what it actually contains even without, without all of those other toppings and fancy ingredients or syrups and things like that. So I think it, it, um, it, it you know, becomes important that we know what we're consuming. But when we think about healthy foods, I think the things that often people overlook are the nutrients that are beyond, um, you know, we talk about antioxidants, we talk about anti-inflammatory ingredients. But just leaning into a plant-rich diet can be hugely helpful to a person. Adding in things, um, so you mentioned beverages, there are great other beverages to have. If you consume dairy, kefir is a fermented uh, form of milk that, that, that is actually good for your gut. The plain version, kombucha, um, again, you know, uh, watch for the added sugars in it. Um, coffee, definitely, if you tolerate it, good worry about what you add to it um and you know water one of the one mm. of the things that gets ignored what i've seen individuals with dehydration present with severe anxiety um uh, poor hydration can also on my instagram some time ago we did we shared on a study where dehydration was also associated with mood a low mood and depression so just remaining hydrated you know having that water bottle with you having your glass of water sipping throughout the day becomes hugely important. Yeah. yeah. In my latest book, In Eat Smarter, I mentioned a study finding that just a mild version of dehydration mm -hmm. shrinks the volume of the brain itself, right? And it makes, yes. of course, it makes, makes sense makes logically sense. because the brain is yeah. mostly water. Water, yeah. But it's not a joke. Like we're looking for these magical mm -hmm. things to mm -hmm. improve our brain health and our cognition. Yeah. Water. water. Yeah. It's primary thing, primary thing. And by the way, I undershot that uh, sugar amount on purpose, but fifty-seven—that's <laughs> about fourteen teaspoons right there. It's huge, yeah. right? Yeah. So that is so crazy. You're getting the smallest one. No, yeah. none of the you know bells and whistles. Mm -hmm. You know the added mm -hmm. accessories, mm -hmm. and it's still that amount of sugar, and it's just like popularized, it, right? it advertised, popularized, marketed to you know uh, as the as the new thing that everyone should be having and. Yeah, so I think we, you know, that's where we just need to know what we're consuming. Mm -hmm. yeah. Awesome, awesome. So, what about tea? Yeah, so tea is one of my favorite substances. Um, I uh, grew up drinking a lot of tea, and I think here 
um, green tea is rich in EGCG and L-theanine. So great, I find that it's a great pick-me-up in the afternoon. So I usually drink my coffee early in the day. And then I find that if I have, I'm having, um, you know, more meetings and something that I have to do in the afternoon and need a little bit of a pick-me-up, actually a cup of green tea is one of my favorite things to do. Um, there are many teas that actually can be used even for anxiety. Um, and sipping on these, there's, there's good, action, good evidence behind them. So, you know, one's passion flower, lavender, chamomile. These actually have been shown. So, the, you know, not, not to be overlooked um, in terms of having some good benefit. Again, what you add to it um, becomes important. Um, and I think, I think it can sometimes be overlooked uh, as a mechanism, just like breath work can be for anxiety, mm. you know. Mm -hmm. So I will spend time uh, teaching a client breath work when they're not anxious. You know, they're working with me in, on, a, on a regular day and teaching them exercises to help that when that panic hits, they have something that they can actually utilize um, beyond Xanax. So, you know, rather than go to the Xanax, why not we think about how can you breathe? Can you hydrate? Did, what did you drink that morning? Maybe you didn't realize that you had something caffeinated that and you're sensitive to caffeine yeah. that could have precipitated it. So. Yeah, and you kicked it off by talking about body awareness. Yes. Being able to pay attention to what's going on within our own system, which we're so externally focused today that we often ignore or misdiagnose yeah. our body's expressions, yeah. right? And yeah. so you're, you're, a big part of your work is getting us to be able to look within, to pay attention to what's going on with our own bodies, to become educated on what to do. Let's, you know, educate ourselves as best we can um, about what to do, because it begins with that self-awareness. Um, whether it's, you know, understanding that there might have been a trauma you experienced or whatever, it starts with self-awareness. And I think that sometimes we spend a lot of time on healing the outside body, but the inside world and our inner world um, is equally important. So, Awesome, awesome. So we've got blueberries on the food side. We've got some, a bunch of beverages we just went through. One other thing, if you could share, because we talked about the omega-3, omega-6 mm -hmm. ratio, so we yeah. want to pay more attention to omega-3s. Omega so where can we get some of those? So omega-3 foods, are rich foods, are things like um, fatty fish. So salmon is a good one. Wild-caught wild salmon is a good choice. Um, there's actually a nice mnemonic for that. For the fatty fish, it's salmon, um, it's smash, sm salmon, mackerel, anchovies, uh, sardines, and... and um, Herring? And herring. Boom, yes. smash. Yes, good, exactly. Sm we so smashed that together. Smashed that, right. <laughs> so, so that's a good mnemonic to know. Um, but, you know, not, not everyone's consumed seafood. And by the way, I, I, I want to mention this. So, so many people said, well, of course, you know, salmon is more expensive and not everyone has access. So recently, I specifically stopped at about two or three dollar stores. And I wanted to see if any of them kept canned salmon. Because here's the thing. You may not be able to get a fresh or frozen side of salmon but you can get it canned and it's still going to have some benefit. And you know, every single store that I hit had cans of salmon. So, you know, understand that there are ways we can get, we can get brain healthy food. Not all the foods they had, there were healthy. In fact, most of them were not in the dollar store, but they did have canned, they had canned fish and they had canned salmon. So just it, to me, it was a note to self. And, um, 
But other sources, if you, like myself, are plant-based, are um, seaweed, algae, um, nuts and seeds. So flax seeds, hemp seeds, all, all rich in, in the um, short-chain omega-3s, which are not as, not as well absorbed. But if, you know, you, you can take an algal oil supplement, if you want, um, to, to make up for that. Absolutely. So I highly recommend people, if they're not doing uh, fatty fish or fish oil, most of the studies are yeah. done using fish oil. Most of the studies are on fish oil. Krill yeah. oil is another option. And also, as you mentioned, at least get yourself an algae oil, yeah. at least. Yeah. Yeah. Because we know the omega-3s, the DHA and EPA yeah. are there. We don't have many studies done yet, but we don't have to wait around. Because yeah. again, this is going back, our ancestors for thousands of years yeah. has been utilizing algae, sea veggies, yes. and the like. Yeah. So we can always yeah. lean on that. And I just appreciate you so much for sharing your wisdom. And could you let everybody know again about your book where they can Thank pick you. up a copy? Thank you. Thanks, Sean. Um, so my book is This Is Your Brain on Food. You can find it on my website at umanaidumd.com. Please, please follow me, subscribe, because you'll get my weekly newsletter where I share a lot of the studies you mentioned and updates. Follow me on Instagram at Dr. Umanaidu and across all social media. So that's at D-R-U-M-A-N-A-I-D-O-O -O, um, and communicate with us. We, we love to hear from people and we love to get book photos when you get the book uh, because we share that. That's how we're building a larger community around this. And I feel very grateful for the invitation, Sean, because it's these, these experiences that help people know a little bit more about the work. So yeah. thank you. You're welcome. It's what it's all about. And by the way, definitely follow Dr. Naidu on Instagram because even a couple of the studies that we talked about today I stay, I, as you know, I stay on top of the data, but I didn't, these were things you brought to me. Like I didn't even know that these studies had been published. And so following you, we get a great dose of actionable things, but also up to date, like cutting edge uh, science and studies. And, you know, you do some beautiful things with food as well. There was one video, like you made those popsicles. Yes. It was so good. <laughs> um, but yeah, please make sure to follow Dr. Naidu and pick up her book like yesterday. And again, I just appreciate you so much. For Thank you, by. Sean. I appreciate you too. Thank awesome. you as always. Dr. Uma Naidu, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. This is such an important conversation and getting more folks educated about this and empowered in this domain. We're talking about mental health and its connection to food specifically. This growing body of evidence is pointing to something that we already knew, which is what we eat truly does matter. When we're talking about our emotional well-being, our mental well-being, and we have the ability within ourselves, within our families, to improve mental health through what we're putting into our bodies. And what we're serving at the dinner table truly does matter. So this is one to share up with your friends and family. Of course, you can send this directly from the podcast app that you're listening on. And of course, you could take a screenshot, tag me. I'm on Instagram at Sean Model and tag Dr. Naidu as well. Let everybody know what you thought about this episode. I appreciate you so very much for tuning in. We've got some epic, absolutely epic masterclasses and interviews with world-class experts coming very, very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care. Have an amazing day. I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. 
and take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.